to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we'll be talking about the hypocrisy of the United States as it concerns uh, invasions and war and interventions and things like this. Also going to be talking about a cache of uh, leaked documents showing how uh, the right wing of UK labor um, uh, attacked and smeared its progressive wing, including the popular Jeremy Corbyn. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Dave Lindorf, investigative journalist, editor of the online publication, ThisCan'tBeHappening.net, and 2019 winner of an Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Media. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, Dave, the uh, United Nations General Assembly has been going on here. And um, of course, representatives and leaders of uh, different countries giving their addresses, giving statements about the status of both uh, their countries, their regions, uh, their hemispheres, uh, and indeed um, the world. But uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, when he he had his turn at the rostrum at the U.N., um, I think some what predictably uh, condemned uh, Russia for its uh, invasion for Ukraine uh, back in February, which, of course, kicked off the uh, ongoing conflict that continues to this very day. And I just feel like the hypocrisy in that is pretty staggering, considering what we know about the history of U.S. invasions and interventions. Now, when saying this, uh, I'm not uh, saying that to uh, justify or excuse uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I've maintained that I don't support it, though I do feel that it was instigated by the U.S. and NATO. But even still, from my perspective, to for uh, President Biden to uh, position the U.S. as having some kind of moral authority on the question of invasion would be laughable if there just wasn't such a blood-soaked history as it pertains to that. And you recently published a piece about this, Dave, for ThisCan'tBeHappening.net, titled simply, U.S. Hypocrisy Knows No Limits. And so uh, how do you view uh, uh, Biden's comments at the U.N.? And from your view, what is the sort of reality of the U.S. and these kinds of uh, uh, military interventions uh, and invasions? Well, I I said it was a little bit like uh, if Trump were to uh, accuse Joe Biden of watching porn. You know, I mean, this is a guy who uh, has uh, touted his uh, crotch grabbing, you know, in public and, you know, has been, you know, uh, pursuing call girls and paying for his sex for years. And, you know, you you would look at that and you'd say, he's complaining that Biden looks at porn. You know, it would be ludicrous. But that's essentially what Biden's doing in atta- trying to attack uh, or criticize Putin and Russia for a war crime in Ukraine. You can't you have to have some moral authority when you if you want to make your criticism stick and you know Biden and the United States are the last leader uh, of a country and the last country in a position to accuse 
any other country of war crimes or genocide. Absolutely. And what are some examples of this that we could point to, Dave? I feel like there are many uh, throughout history that sort of, you know, shows that uh, Washington doesn't really have a leg to stand on as it pertains to this question. You know, look, the, the U.S. said, let's just, uh, you know, I'm not going to go back for 200 years, which I could. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> um, if we just start with the end of World War II, the U.S. has violated the UN charter that it helped to author and that it signed and made into law. That's a treaty, the UN charter, by the way. It's a a treaty that lays out war war crimes and the primary war crime is crime against peace, which is, uh, or the threat of a crime against peace, which is an invasion that's not approved by the UN Security Council, or that uh, isn't in response to an imminent, and that's the key word, threat from another nation. So uh, the U.S. is is guilty of war crimes from the beginning, right after World War II, uh, right through to the present, uh, in both numerically in terms of the times it's done it. And also in terms of the scale of what it's done, I mean, if if you take uh, the biggest, uh, m- most egregious crime against peace by the United States was the invasion of Vietnam, which, you know, it's hard to know when it began because it 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 crept up. You know, it started out with sending twenty thousand uh, special forces into Vietnam under Kennedy, and then, you know, five hundred thousand. Troops under uh, under Johnson in 1965, and uh, continued under Nixon. Uh, so uh, this was a full scale invasion of another country that posed no threat to the United States, and that led to the deaths, uh, and not just Vietnam, but Laos and Cambodia. Uh, by the time they were through and that killed uh, an estimated three million people, most of whom were civilians, men, women, and children. So, you know, this is a war crime on an epic scale, you know, right up there with, with Hitler. And uh, and yet, uh, you know, we did that. And, uh, and yet we're criticizing a war in Ukraine that has killed maybe, uh, you know, tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 people. Uh, that that's minuscule by comparison. And, and also in terms of destruction, you know, we are talking about all the destruction of Ukraine. It's not total. Vietnam was completely obliterated. It's it's jungles and rice crops and, and land were uh, poisoned by the deliberate uh, dropping of defoliants, cancer causing defoliants. Uh, on the land, it just goes on and on. Carpet bombing with B-52s over all of North Vietnam and and its major cities, Hanoi and Haiphong, uh, bombing dikes, which is an illegal act. Um, it just it just goes on and on and on, and that's just one war. Now we can go back and look at uh, the war crimes of the Korean War when the U.S. dropped so many bombs on North Korea that. 
uh, even with the sanction of the Security Council, uh, it, what it did in, to North Korea was so bad that, you know, the bombers couldn't find targets. They were flying back from their bomb runs and dropping their bombs in the uh, in the ocean before getting back to Tokyo and landing because you don't want to land a bomber loaded with bombs it's a it's a recipe for disaster so they would just unload their unused bombs their entire payloads into the ocean uh so they could safely land on their return because they had no targets everything was destroyed in north vietnam and that's another uh three million people that were killed so we're up to six million people killed since world war ii in illegal wars um or killed illegally in perhaps slightly legal wars um then uh you have uh you have iraq look at look at iraq we destroyed iraq destroyed the country killed by different estimates perhaps as many as a million people and displaced four million uh in a war that was totally illegal and that the government deliberately lied uh to get the excuses for but even with the if the excuses had been true there was no imminent threat of war from iraq Definitely. And, you know, within your piece, you tell a very interesting uh, uh, personal story about how you've actually seen uh, the ravages of a U.S. war. And I believe this was particularly in uh, the country of Laos. And so I hope you could uh, describe that to us and, you know, what it uh, uh, sort of evidences about this issue of uh, U.S. war campaigns. Well, it's hard to find a, a more um benign non-threatening country than laos it's like it's a beautiful country it's one of the few countries i can name having lived in asia for six years uh that's underpopulated it's like the size of great britain but it only has a few million people and that's not normal in asia um it's a it's a beautiful jungle country you know peasants uh grow crops there in in uh, land that's so fertile that you throw seeds on it and they grow you know like really fast it it's a place where where uh that was so uh lush and uh and ideal for human life that uh i was told by a world bank uh guy that was on the same plane i was on when i was flying home from that visit uh that he had never been to a place before where when he was checking out the uh, a highway project they were funding that was connecting Laos to Cambodia, uh, he said everywhere else he goes on highway building in Asia, he sees the same thing where the, as the highway gets into uh, one area, all the peasants leave their land, leave their farming, and start following the, the road working as construction workers. And when it gets to a big city, they end up settling there and using the they learned doing construction to, you know, be uh, migrant workers doing construction and they don't go back to their farms. But he said in Laos, it's a different phenomenon that the farmers are so happy being farmers in Laos, even living on, you know, $100 a year income, they follow the highway for maybe 50 miles doing construction work and earning some money. And then they take the money and they go back to farming and bring the money home. It's a different situation. So here's this beautiful country. And the U.S. went there and bombed 
parts of Vietnam in the north at the Plain of Jars and, and down in the south in the rice growing regions that the U.S. dropped so many bombs that if you look, and I have a picture in the uh, in the article of one stretch of the Plain of Jars, you just see these circles like craters, uh, like on the moon. If the moon were suddenly to become a uh, planet with an atmosphere and rain, all those craters on the moon would suddenly become lakes and uh, you know, have uh, weeds and, and grass growing around them. That's what the Plain of Jars looks like. It's just circle, 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 circle of ponds. And every one of those is a bomb crater from a 500 or 1,000 pound bomb dropped in rice paddies. They, they were dropping explosives. They were dropping, they, they had planes coming down to hit individual water buffalo to terrorize them and stop rice production uh, in Laos. This is like an atrocity beyond belief. And, and yet, uh, and, and, and they also dropped anti-personnel bombs, which scattered these little baseball-sized things that the Lao people call bombies uh, that are still in the mud so that you see young kids. Uh, when I was there in 1995, you saw young kids walking around with missing arms and legs uh, 20 years after the war. And I asked, you know, well, why are these kids crippled like this? The war ended long before they were born. And I was told, these are from the bombies in the in the uh, in the rice paddies. The kids go out there to work or, or to play and they find these things or they stumble on them in the mud and they blow up and take off a limb or two if they don't kill the kid. Uh, it, this is so horrible, and and this is something the U.S. did to this country. Why? Because the Ho Chi Minh Trail ran through the uh, border of Laos outside of Vietnam, and the U.S. wanted to interdict all the uh, men and equipment that were coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to supply the fighters in the south against the U.S. But that's illegal. You can't. You can't just go into a country and bomb the crap out of it, you know, and, and the U.S. did that for decades. And then in Cambodia, they did the same thing. They sent in B-52s to bomb Cambodia, one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, and um, so I, I just did this list, you know, you, this is America and, and this country cannot criticize anybody for war crimes with this kind of history. Absolutely. And see what you're describing, um, the ongoing fallout, the fact that people in countries like Laos are still dealing with uh, uh, that U.S. campaign, that bombing campaign against them. This is something that is hidden from view. Uh, and the consciousness of the American people. And I don't think that's uh, uh, an accident, Dave. And as someone, you know, who is sort of a longtime kind of an independent uh, uh, media figure, I mean, how do you see the role of the uh, uh, mainstream media here in the U.S. sort of both uh, skewing and covering up not only the, the war crimes of the U.S. as they happen, but also their aftermath? The U.S. media, corporate media, is complicit, completely complicit in supporting U.S. foreign policy, which is uh, a, a foreign policy of imperialism and, and war crimes. And you don't get those written about. I mean, 
we the you see a New York Times or a Washington Post writing about the crimes uh, that Russia commits in Ukraine or that Russia commits in uh, in Syria or that uh, you know um, what, what uh, China commits in Tibet, right or or in uh, Urumqi, but you don't get uh, reports on the war crimes that the U.S. commits. Uh, in fact, that was what uh, has the U.S. trying to pursue and uh, extradite Julian Assange in uh, the U.K. because he exposed the war crimes that the U.S. was committing in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and you're not allowed to do that in this country. So uh, it, it is uh, most, as you say, and most Americans don't know that the U.S. is a, is a the, the world's, well, as Martin Luther King said in the speech that got him killed uh, in uh, the Riverside Church speech he gave in uh, on my birthday, April 4th, 1967, he uh, gave a speech saying that the U.S. is the major purveyor of violence in the world. And that at that time, uh, in 1967, uh, was true, and it's still true. What, what uh, all these years later? What's that? That's 40, 50, 50, 60 years later, right? We're still the major purveyor of uh, violence in the world. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Dave, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about new leak documents showing how uh, Israel lobby groups work to scuttle Jeremy Corbyn and the progressive side of UK labor. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Asa Winstonley, investigative journalist and associate editor with the Electronic Intifada. Asa, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you again. Absolutely. And Asa, there's a collection of uh, leaked labor documents that have uh, been exposed showing how uh, the Israel lobby worked to scuttle uh, not only Jeremy Corbyn, a uh, leader of the progressive wing of the UK Labour Party, but also uh, sort of that wing of the party itself, seemingly. And this was exposed in an episode of an Al Jazeera documentary series entitled The Labour Files. This is a new three-part series that the platform's investigative unit um, has been uh, working on and publishing here. These are the same folks that did um, the Lobby documentary and the Lobby USA, which I believe was actually uh, censored from the outset. And Al Jazeera is calling this, quote, the largest leak of documents in British political history. So, Asa, what was contained uh, uh, within these documents and what does it show about the reality of how these elements work to undermine the progressive side of UK labor? 
Well, it shows a lot of different things. It's still coming out, like it's still being released as a three-part series, and part three is hopefully coming out sometime today. Yeah, they, they as as you said, they're describing it as the largest leak in British political history, and they've said on their website that this is a leak they've obtained of 500 gigabytes worth of Labour Party files of documents, video, audio, uh, and other computer files, presumably, in which, you know, from from internal Labour Party sources, it looks like it's from the Labour Party's disciplinary unit. That's what it, it seems to be focused on. Um, so it's concerned with, you know, expelling members, suspending members um, for, you know, in large part for the anti-Semitism smears, which were targeted against Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and what we've seen so far is, um, first of all, we saw how the Labour Party works internally, how it works against its own left wing, how it works to kind of purge left wing members like Jeremy Corbyn and try, and his supporters trying to expel them. And it works with kind of, uh, this this particular right wing, you could call him a right wing fixer, really a, a thug, really, named Luke Stanger, um, who he's he's a, he's a pro Israel activist and a labor a right wing labor activist, um, and um, it just showed you know despite all, uh, credible allegations against him of um, harassment and really abuse targeting left wingers. You know, he, despite all of that, he's been protected by the Labour Party, by powerful people within the Labour Party. You know, he's been suspended because of his abuse of Labour Party members, left wing Labour Party members. And the highest disciplinary body in the Labour Party did make a ruling that he should be expelled because of his behaviour, because of uh, harassment and even uh, allegedly death threats against family members of um, left wing pro Palestinian members. And Stanger is nonetheless been protected by uh, right-wing Labour MP Peter Kyle, by Luke Akehurst. Luke Akehurst is an influential Labour right-wing activist um, who is also a pro-Israel lobbyist. And, um, you know, the, the documents they obtained showed that Stanger, Luke's, this activist Luke Stanger, he was protected by Luke Akehurst by... Luke Akers actually wrote the original, the metadata proves that Luke Akers wrote the metadata protecting this guy. Uh, sorry, wrote the document. The metadata proves that uh, Luke Akers wrote this document, which was um, written in Luke Stanger's name, but was looks like the original version of it was actually written by this pro-Israel lobbyist. So, you know, there's a lot of um, shady stuff as, essentially going on, and these files expose that. Um, there's there's another in the second episode of the documentary. There was an uh, an even more um, outrageous um, revelation showing in, in we see in the documentary a whistleblower, a former member of Labour Party's disciplinary staff, and it's quite harrowing to see her distress because she breaks down in tears, recalling um, how abusive the actual Labour Party disciplinary staff was. You know, it was um, 
they were really targeting left-wing activists, pro-Jeremy Corbyn activists, uh, to, to kind of find um, evidence of anti-Semitism. And the, um, one of the search terms they used to find this alleged anti-Semitism was Palestine. So you can see the real agenda at play here. Absolutely. And I feel like um, a lot of people have been um, raising just this issue even before uh, all of these documents came out. Eh? So this whole issue about just this attack from Corbyn mm-hmm. and that wing of labor from inside the party. And could you explain from the standpoint of British politics, why that campaign had to take place? Why was this uh, there this attack on the, you know, uh, progressive and namely sort of a pro-Palestinian wing of uh, uh, the party? And uh, I think also when we look at the rise of Keir Starmer, uh, that's definitely a factor as well. It's just, you know, I'm just for, our, you know, U.S. based audience. What did this really mean for politics mm. in uh, the U.K.? Yeah, well, a large part of it was just down to the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was a Palestine solidarity activist. You know, he has history inside the Palestine solidarity movement. And that was the reason for why he was smeared as an anti-Semite. But uh, in generally, why he was, um, because you know, because that, that he was smeared as an anti-Semite because that is what is always used falsely to attack Palestine solidarity activists in general. So that was a useful political weapon. But he was also, you know, he was also on the left. He is on the left of the Labour Party. He's still a Labour Party member, although he's no longer a Labour MP. Um, and because he was the leader of the opposition for um for five years, for the best part of five years, he had a chance of becoming the prime minister. And his policies were not radical, actually. If you looked at his policies, they were actually moderate social democrat policies that even, you know, if you go back to the 1970s, even conservative governments would have had similar policies to what Jeremy Corbyn was um, uh, proposing to carry out. Um, And it... You know, so he was, he, he, although he wasn't a radical, he, he was perceived as a threat to the British establishment because the British establishment sees the Labour Party as very much part of itself, that the idea is to kind of um, let out steam, I suppose, from the system, demands for change by switching between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, which is which have some differences, but essentially... Um, both are, especially since the Tony Blair era of the Labour Party, both parties um, are part of the same neoliberal economic and political order. And they have essentially not quite the same, but very, very similar policies um, in much the same way as the Republicans and Democrats in the United States. So because although Corbyn was, was a moderate social democrat, and not a radical, um, despite that, the fact that he was proposing a break with this neoliberal consensus um, was considered to be a threat by the British political establishment. Um, and um, the Israel lobby was is very much part of that political establishment, you know, part of the same sort of global imperialist world order. So, you know, he was... The, the fact that he was considering a break with that and a change, the direction of travel was just too threatening for them. So he had to be overthrown. 
Yeah, and you know, when you describe Corbin's program, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, uh, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon here in the United States. And indeed, a lot of people have um, compared the two, although, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, pro-Palestine politics are basically verboten in a U.S. mainstream politics. But um, even still, his program also uh, was not that radical. Matter of fact, in, you know, places like the U.K. and the Europe, it, it would seem uh, very basic. It's just in hearing that from the U.K. side, it just makes me think about how, you know, right wing uh, politics has gotten in the West to where, you know, these uh, uh, basic programs are sort of, you know, portrayed like they're these uh, grand, you know, revolutionary manifestos or something for, for whatever positive thing they may have. So I think that's noteworthy. And, you know, something that continues to strike me, Asa, is just how nasty um, the right wing of uh, UK labor can be when it comes uh, uh, to this whole issue. And I mean, you recently also published a piece in Electronic Intifada. Um, I believe also this was exposed in the labor files about how, you know, label officials actually laughed at uh, the death of one of their members that was accused of anti-Semitism. Right. So, so what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, that struck me too. They, you know, the the labor writers are just the most despicable people. Like, it is really disgusting the depths that they'll sink to. They they won't. They'll stop at nothing basically to to keep the status quo in place. Um, and yes, this was something also exposed in the labor files obtained by Al Jazeera. This massive leak of labor party documents, and we see in this film this the, this what I was referring to earlier. This whistleblower, a former member of Labour Party staff in the disciplinary unit, and she relates and. Part of the reason she was crying was because she related um, an occasion where they were, um, it had been a Labour Party member, pro Palestinian uh, Labour Party member from the left, had been expelled from the party um, over an allegation of anti Semitism, as happened to so many people, um, uh, including, you know, disproportionately Jewish leftists. Um, in the in this case, the women, the as it was described, it was an elderly woman who'd been expelled, and uh, she actually died of a she had a stroke and she passed away shortly after the learning of her expulsion. Now, after this happened, there was a staff meeting called about this about the the death and the expulsion it seems um and um the whistleblower recalls that the senior member of labor party staff actually said and learning about this death oh look we're anti-semite killers now and then apparently what happened was the whole room just burst out in laughter so they're laughing at the death of one of their own members and that they'd the idea that they'd caused it and it, it's really harrowing to see like the the, the whistleblower the woman halima khan who recalls this then just she says that she she broke down in tears that she'd broke down at the time because it was just something that she didn't know how to handle or just the the sheer brutality of these people uh, in being willing to really do anything to hang on to what vestiges of political power they have. 
Yeah, and you mentioned earlier these uh, reactionary uh, operatives like uh, Luke Stanger, and these are the people that uh, the Israel lobbyists protected while uh, basically purging the party's left wing. And another way, another uh, example of this that was exposed in these documents was, you know, the protection of uh, one Ella Rose, who I believe actually talked about wanting to like physically attack uh, one of the uh, progressives in the party. Do I have that right? What's going on? there yeah essentially yeah that's right um so yeah ella rose was the well first of all she worked in the israeli embassy she was an officer in the israeli embassy and she was this was back in uh 2015 2016 and she was recruited at in 2016 out of the israeli embassy to work for the jewish labor movement which is ostensibly the just a representative of the Jewish community within the Labour Party. But in actual fact, a lot of its real purpose is to protect the state of Israel. Um, and in large part, they did that by um, accusing Jeremy Corbyn falsely of anti-Semitism. And so Ella Rose was then essentially, I suppose, recruited out of the Israeli embassy into the Jewish labour movement. Um, and... As part, she was exposed in the in the Al in the Al Jazeera documentary. The 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 previous one from 2017, the one you mentioned in the introduction, the lobby, and um, before that documentary, I it was actually myself who I wrote an article. I I learned that she were you know she as the Jewish Labour Movement director that she was somebody who was actually recruited out of the Israeli embassy and that hadn't been known. And I published an article about it in 2016. Um, and then she's filmed in this undercover Al Jazeera documentary talking about myself and others, Jackie Walker, a black Jewish anti-Zionist. And she was saying about Jackie Walker that she could take her, that she could, she could take her down if there was a fight, you know? Um, and so, you know, she, she was then complained about after uh, left-wingers saw the Al Jazeera documentary and her saying that. Uh, but this new series now shows that um, th she was protected by right-wingers who were in the disciplinary staff. Um, the Labour Party right-wingers just basically dismissed, essentially dismissed this complaint. I mean, it's what we suspected happened at the time, but um, it's, it's very interesting to see it in you know, the actual hard evidence for it. Yeah, and, you know, what all of this really, I think, shows, um, Asa, is, I mean, just how crucial the support of Zionist Israel is in the politics of the U.K. and certainly of the U.S. as well that uh, funds the uh, genocidal uh, apartheid uh, regime to the tune of three and four billion dollars a year. And the flip side of that and why it's necessary to purge those um, uh, the left wing of the party and why it's uh, uh, necessary to attack uh, the pro-Palestinian movement in general is because it's sort of a, a threat to that. To advance uh, the cause of Palestinian liberation is a threat to U.S. and British imperialism. And so as a movement people, I just feel like we should really bear that in mind and not lose sight of that when we see these kinds of attacks 
And uh, I feel like a lot of the people who have been attacked and been purged from UK labor have uh, responded pretty bravely and have continued to speak out and be active. And I just feel like that kind of uh, uh, tenacity is something that we're going to have to reflect on and mirror as we continue in the struggle. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, um, you know, I've I've said it on Twitter before, uh, sort of half, leap, half flippantly, but um, I do think it's true in a lot of ways, saying that Israel is the reason we can't have nice things. Like we couldn't even have a moderate social democratic prime minister in large part because of a smear campaign that was orchestrated by pro-Israel groups. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, the Zionist movement and the Israel lobby are kind of the spear tip of reaction. They're, they're a reactionary vanguard in our countries, which is, you know, incredibly counter-revolutionary and very useful for imperialist politicians. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Asa, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carafa, the co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be back with you. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, uh, today I want to talk about something that I don't believe we've touched on a lot uh, here on Tech for the People, and that is uh, the issue of so-called accountability apps or what is sometimes referred to as shameware apps that um, I feel like are marketed to churches and religious institutions and parents and that uh, they're, they're basically advertised as, you know, being a way to keep people from, you know, viewing uh, things on their devices, whether it's pornography or what have you. Um, But it's also seemingly a a tool for surveillance. And, uh, you know, uh, Wired recently published uh, a piece about this, talking about an app called um, Covenant Eyes. So I was hoping you could tell us about this uh, technology, Chris, and what is the reality behind this uh, veneer of moral uprightness? Yes, there are a couple uh, couple of these accountability apps uh, that are, you know, the kind of the most famous. It's um, Covenant Eyes and Accountable to You. It's number two and then Y-O-U. Um, and it turns out that uh, there's a – in this article, what they highlight is a church, a Southern Baptist church called Grace Point that, uh, that encourages its parishioners – to install one of these apps, Covenant Eyes, on their phones, and that's basically straight up uh, surveillance software that they're that they have, and they're doing this because you know in the example that they give, the story that they share, it's a uh, one man who uh, ex- you know expressed to the pastor that he had uh, homosexual urges. He was thinking about men in a sexual way, and rather than being kicked out of the church, they told him you should install Covenant Eyes. Well, it turns out that this guy, 
you know, when he was searching the web for certain things, he would almost immediately, it seemed like, get a call from the church saying, is there anything you need to talk about? Is there anything uh, that you need to tell us? Should we have a conversation suggesting and then really saying that they were monitoring everything that he was doing on his phone? These kinds of apps can monitor uh, microphone, they can monitor your messages, they can monitor everything that's on your screen, even going as far as taking screenshots and sending them back to the company, which then sends it to the service that you signed up for them with. So, for example, Grace Point Church could see what is on your phone at any given time, including the messages that you're sending, your location, and all of that. And the really unfortunate thing about this, because there are so many spyware tools that do this, is that people are being convinced to install this stuff on their phone uh, because they feel like they need help through whatever it is, a church, you know, and certainly nothing wrong with, uh, with going to church, with trying to, you know, live your life a certain way in that sense. But, you know, the, the, oppression that these kinds of, you know, this is a Southern Baptist church, but the oppression that these kinds of institutions put onto uh, their parishioners is being extended into literally watching them 24 hours a day through their phones. And this isn't the only situation where these things are used. Uh, schools have been using this type of software, as uh, as our parents through software like called you know Net Nanny and others, uh, where they install it on their kid's device, and again it you know looks at all their messages, it copies all their you know web browsing and all of that. Um, but it's really the the pressure that institutions like this put on their on the people that are really relying on them and trusting them. It would be like if you were in, you know, AA or NA and your sponsor said, install this app. And anytime you walked near a bar, it, you know, sent your sponsor an alert and they, you know, texted you rather than giving you the ability to say, you know what, this is a situation I want to deal with. I want help and I'm going to reach out for that help. Yeah. And that that I think is uh, a big part of the issue, like there's a whole moral aspect to this to where people uh, often download these things seemingly because they actually are seeking some um, counsel or some kind of help or some kind of, you know, therapeutic kind of situation, if you want to put it that way. And I feel like the way they're designed could basically be, uh, you know, uh, violated in that way. So in a sense, it almost feels, you know, abusive to, to sort of uh, engage uh, with people in this way. And I feel like that reflects on how these companies create uh, apps like this uh, uh, for just that reason. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I just, I want to be clear. I do not think that, uh, you know, if you are, uh, if you think you might be gay, the way to do, you know, the way to handle that is go through a church and deny yourself. I am a queer person myself. That is certainly not the way to do it. But I'm talking in the more general sense of people mm -hmm. who are trying to maintain their own agency in the decisions that they make in their life and relying on certain support systems. Uh, you know, I think this story is getting a lot of attention because it is, you know, it's a little, uh, it, you know, it's about a church, it's about homosexuality and all of that. I think certainly that's why it's getting a lot of attention. But again, this is not something that is just being used, you know, in these churches. Um, and, you know, the entire surveillance and, and sh uh, you know, I, they call this shameware. And I think that's appropriate, but it's also a subcategory of spyware. And there's this entire spyware industry, some of it sold, you know, kind of above ground, some of it sold underground. 
that does all of this stuff, and there is very little regulation. Occasionally, Google, you know, will take it off of its uh, Play Store for Android apps, and you know that'll happen. Um, but a lot of it just goes unnoticed effectively until there's a story like this and some action is taken. There's certainly no regulation um, on this. And often they say, well, if you installed the app yourself, then you wanted the app. And I think, you know, I can certainly see why that argument is made, but it's, I, I think ultimately it's disingenuous to say that because of the power dynamics and the pressure uh, in question. Yeah, definitely. And uh, switching gears a little bit, Chris, the New York Times is reporting that LinkedIn, uh, a sort of popular uh, resume uh, job seeking site that I feel like has kind of taken on more features of uh, social media platforms in recent years. But reportedly, they ran a social experiment on 20 million users over five years. What in the world is happening here? You know, it's so ironic to me that uh, the New York Times had this this long story about a LinkedIn social experiment when they also admit right in the article that they used this kind of experiment to do to test the titles of their articles. So if you go to an article on the New York Times and, uh, you know, has one, you know, one headline and your friend goes on their phone and has another one that might be different in the Times, you know, uses that. But LinkedIn did this study that affected 20 million people. I mean, look, people are on LinkedIn because they're trying to advance their careers. They're trying to find a job, maybe, or they're trying to hire somebody. And LinkedIn, without telling anyone, from 2015 to 2019, they changed the way that the little people you may know box, where it says, you know, do you know this person? Here's your, you know, first, second, third level contacts, you know, who are in their circles. You know, you might want to add them. It, they tweaked that and they did what's called an A-B test where you have, you know, two groups or more to test different variations of the algorithm that picks who's going to show up in that box for you. Uh, but they did this without telling anyone. They did this without the consent, the explicit consent of the people who were impacted here. You know, they could say, hey, we have two different ways. We want to focus on people that are closer to your inner circle or people that are a little further out and give them people an option or a choice and say, you know what, let me try this. Talking to people who I'm closer to or who I have a stronger connection to maybe, you know, second degree people isn't working out in my job search. Let me expand that. They could have given people the choice and explained it, but rather they use it as an experiment. And it's completely just, it, it, it really blows my mind how they've done this. And they're just coming out and they publish a study about it and have no self-awareness of how damaging this could have been to people who are trying to find a job to keep themselves employed or, you know, basically alive and able to function. And they're not the only company that has done stuff like this. Uh, During the, I believe it was the 2012 election, Facebook uh, did an A-B test to see what got people more interested or, you know, in going to vote and what what got actually got people to go to vote, you know, if they showed a counter of how many people on Facebook said they had voted, or they showed that counter and showed little pictures of your friends underneath it, were you more likely to go vote? Turns out the answer was yes. But again, Facebook did not actually admit that they were doing this until afterwards. Um, And I mean, that's interfering in democracy right there, as far as I'm concerned. So this LinkedIn thing might not be as socially uh, significant in the long run as the Facebook question, but it really shows us, and I think it's still completely irresponsible, that 
these companies are really aiming to be their own entities in, in the sense that they can do whatever they want with their users, with us, instead of you know being a service that is provided for us. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised uh, the Facebook piece uh, because that that is immediately what I thought of uh, when I said this. I mean, it's hard to even really kind of describe like how wild this uh, kind of thing is to see these uh, uh, these tech companies and these platforms do this sort of thing. I mean, I think the the ethical questions there are pretty clear. But you know, if nothing else, Chris, I really feel like it just shows you know uh, like the power of these platforms and what it is that they're actually able to do with these uh, uh, platforms and sites that people use very regularly into the case of LinkedIn, like you say, it serves a a particular utility for some. And I feel like that's just one more reason why these platforms should be uh, democratically ran institutions so that we don't see these types of things and so that they can continue to serve their purpose without being like, you know, like weirdly exploitative or, you know, uh, a surveillance type of deal, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's that's really what it comes down to is we rely on these services so much, you know, Facebook to, to stay in touch with our family and friends, our neighborhoods, you know, groups of people we have a shared interest with, um, you know, Twitter. Similarly, you know, we come up, keep people get a lot of news on Twitter. Um, you know, Reddit is a place to get a lot of news. Uh, LinkedIn, you know, for getting jobs. I mean, all of these sites, whether you think, you know, that they're significant or not in terms of, you know, what people do on them, the reality is that millions and, you know, millions of people in the U.S. and billions across the world do rely on them every day for entertainment, for fun, or just, you know, straight up for their news and for information that is really, it could be life-changing. I mean, talking about, you know, COVID misinformation or election misinformation. And the way these platforms, you know, try to kind of go back and forth on, on what it is they are responsible for, depending on the current political tide, you know, really shows us that they're just out for the money and they don't want the negative attention. They just want to continue having us on the sites to, to make money. I mean, you know, after the 2016 election, you know, Facebook pivoted to focusing on, on neighborhoods and groups instead of, you know, pages showing up on your wall. They really, I mean, they had a whole advertising campaign on TV and billboards and stuff about this. Uh, and it really showed that, you know, but still they allow so much, you know, straight up just like far right content, you know, to propagate with, you know, and what are they, what are they blocking? They're blocking Russian news. (laughs) They're blocking, you know, anti-imperialist sites. They're not doing anything about, you know, these sites and these uh, accounts that are really pushing dangerous misinformation. But they talk about misinformation as if it's something that they alone can solve. So the question really becomes, you know, ultimately not what are the policies of these companies, but who controls them and who sets the policies. And that should be us. It should be the people using the sites. But unfortunately, in a capitalist system, it is all the profit motive. Absolutely. And uh, I think on a similar note, talking about the uh, super profits of uh, tech companies, um, Google recently all uh, excuse me, recently had an all hands meeting and CEO Sundar Pichai had to face some uh, pretty uh, serious questions about uh, why Google is, quote, nickel and diming employees and cutting the budgets for travel and uh, what they call swag, which, you know, is like uh, free stuff and amenities and things. Uh, 
like that at a time when, uh, quote, Google has record profits and huge cash reserves. And I'm not going to lie, some of uh, Peshar's uh, answers are, are pretty funny to me, just in the sense of kind of how weak they are and like how they just are clearly just sort of thinly veiled to try to protect um, the profits of Google. Uh, you know, he said in one part, quote, how do I say it? Look, I hope all of you are reading the news externally. The fact that, you know, we are being a bit more responsible through one of the toughest macroeconomic conditions underway in the past decade. I think it's important that as a company, we pull together to get through moments like this. Adding, I remember when Google was small and scrappy. Fun didn't always, we shouldn't always equate fun with money. I think you can walk into a hardworking startup and people may be having fun and it shouldn't always equate to money. Now, for someone as wealthy as Sundar Pichai to say that you, d you shouldn't equate fun with money to his employees, uh, who's, you know, uh, the budgets of, uh, you know, some of the perks and things that they enjoy being slashed. That's pretty wild. You know what I mean? And so, first of all, what is motivating Google to, uh, you know, make these cuts, Chris? And, and what do you make of uh, Pachai's uh, uh, responses here? Well, part of what's motivating this is that for the uh, quarter that ended on June 30th of this year, they had a 13.6% decline in net income. Um, but don't feel too bad for them because that quarter, their net income was still $16 billion with a B. But that's, you know, they're looking at quarter by quarter profits. They're looking at uh, quarter by quarter income. They're not looking at, you know, any kind of long term thing because that's what the markets want. The markets want immediate return. The markets want immediate profit and, uh, you know, that to show up in, you know, in the stock price. But really, you know, Prachai is, is looking at, cost savings in really strange ways for some of the perks that employees get. And I think, you know, we've all heard the jokes, you know, oh, it's got the, you know, they got the beer cooler and the ping pong table at, the, at these startups. And I mean, yes, that has been, you know, part of the culture of VC funded, uh, you know, invested, uh, you know, startups and larger companies like this. But ultimately, it's about what is what are the employees doing? And so, we also see that uh, Pichai wants to make the company, he says, 20% more productive. I mean, like, that's a really very specific percent. Like, it has to be 20%. It can't be 19 or 18. Uh, and I'm sure he'd be happy if it were 21. But Googlers who have been around a while point out the fact that uh, Google, that they're as employees, they used to have what was called 20% time, which was time to work on projects that weren't necessarily part of their job, but they thought were interesting. And in fact, Gmail is one of those 20% projects. It wasn't something that, you know, Google said from the top, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make an email client and it's going to be, you know, worlds ahead of, of everything else that exists in like 2004 or wh whatever year it was that it launched. But now they're getting rid of that kind of, uh, you know, attitude in the company. And I think that was a productive attitude, right? To say, like, employees can take some time to try to build what they think the world needs um, rather than what the, you know, profits are demanding of, the, you know, of the company. And they're getting rid of that and saying we're going to be 20% more productive instead. So I think really it's, it's a short-term, it's, it's a long-term response to a short-term disappointment, even though that disappointment was still based on 20, uh, a $16 billion uh, net income. 
Yeah, and uh, last thing I want to touch on today, Chris, about uh, swinging to New York City. There are privacy groups that are uh, criticizing what they call a surveillance theater in terms of the subway cameras. Uh, and I think that this is an example of how surveillance sort of impacts people in their everyday life. But uh, what's happening with this issue? Yeah, New York has 6,455 subway cars, and the governor, Kathy Hochul, wants to install two cameras in every single car. This is such an amazing, massive privacy uh, threat to everyone who uses the New York City subway, and that is the majority of people in the city trying to go work, play, whatever it is they're trying to do, school, anything. If you know New York City, if you're getting around— you're either on the buses or you're on the trains, uh, you know, or, you know, no one has a car, um, but they're going to have these cameras that are not going to be monitored live, but they're going to be recording. That's a massive, huge amount of data that they're going to have to store and secure. But of course, they're going to let the NYPD and uh, Metro Police and others have access to that. So if there is some sort of incident on a subway, they're going to be, you know, be able to call up that camera and say, all right, who was around? So anyone who's in the subway car could be caught on camera. Um, and we know, we've seen all seen how a video at a certain angle can tell a very different story than a video at another angle. So I think that it's really, really important that New Yorkers fight against this. There's been uh, really significant fight back from groups like the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, which is STOP, uh, as well as the ACLU and others against both this and the new uh, op Omni vending machines and cards that are being rolled out slowly and will be officially rolled out next year uh, as they try to roll, you know, roll back the ability to use cash to buy a to buy a metro card in the city, which is also uh, a violent, you know, a threat to people's privacy. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're going to move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way you can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 2 Zero two five two one one three two zero. Our rapporteurs are standing by. You can also download our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check out the show at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. And uh, we're also broadcasting live just like every day from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. Of course, also check us out at Facebook and twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, 
We want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Gloria Lariva, coordinator of the Cuba and Venezuela Solidarity Committee and co-founder of the Hotway Project. Gloria, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? How are you both today? Doing well, Gloria, doing well. And of course, some very exciting news uh, coming out of Cuba as a supermajority of uh, eligible voters uh, uh, voted in support of the Families Code. Uh, and this was uh, something that uh, took place on September 25th. And, uh, you know, there were uh, about 6.2 million eligible voters on this issue with 74% turning out to vote and a supermajority of 66.89% approving the family code. Now, Gloria, a lot of people uh, sort of have been focusing and highlighting on the uh, gay marriage aspect of uh, Cuba's family code, which is understandable because uh, that, that's a popular issue and things like that. And uh, certainly that's, uh, you know, an important sort of development. But there was a lot that was contained within the family's code. And I wanted to begin, if you could sort of break down, what is the content of the family's code? What is its significance to Cuba? And how does it square with uh, the tenets of that country's revolution? Very good question. First of all, the, the revolution from the very beginning with its um, policies and social and economic changes has always included the whole population to debate and vote on the proposed changes. But the, in 1975, there was what was called a family code to recognize the need of promoting women's equality and to make sure that in the home of the so-called traditional family of man and woman and children, that the woman had to have rights to have help you know, equality in responsibility of health care and of the taking care of the home, of having um, the rights for the children, of the responsibility of the parents to take care of the family and things like that. But it was very basic. And with the 50 years that have passed since that time, almost 50 years in the world's movement of LGBTQ liberation, um, further women's rights and so many issues that have evolved. The new Families Code was proposed right after the constitution of the country was revised in 2019, three years ago. And it includes a hugely expanded code. It's 117 pages and 471 articles that includes everything having to do with family. In Cuba, family is the foundation of the society. But of course, we know a family cannot just be a man and a woman. You know, there's single parent families, there's gay families, but it wasn't recognized. So yes, it does uh, provide the right to same-sex marriage, but because it's new and because it hasn't been basically recognized before, I think that's the biggest one, but there's so much more. Now it would allow surrogacy births for single parents, gay parents, uh, straight parents. It ha wasn't. It didn't have that before because, you know, it's a relatively new technology. It expands the rights of adoption. It provides a lot more protection for seniors and grandparents' rights. Uh, for example, you know, promoting the right of grandparents to be able to see their grandchildren. 
if there's a sort of a conflict with the parents. One thing that's very interesting is parental leave for the mother and the father has always been allowed since about 2001, a one-year paid parental leave. But now in this code, grandparents will have the right to take care of their newborn baby so that the mother can go back to work if she feels that she has to continue working. The grandparent will be able to take care of the baby on paid leave, which is really remarkable. We couldn't even conceive of that here in the U.S., much less uh, paid parental leave. Yeah, definitely. And you know what I also found interesting about um, this family code, uh, uh, Gloria, is um, sort of the how it sort of focuses on children. And I'm trying to think of the, the right word to use, but basically how it seems like it's trying to raise the profile of the child and basically in in a way like increase democracy within the home, I think is one way to put it in terms of how children are sort of perceived and how they're uh, uh, sort of situated within the family union. And what I'm really talking about is the kind of strengthening of children's rights. And so what does that look like within the family code? And how do you compare and contrast with the status of children here in the U.S.? Well, it's really interesting about this code. It it can't be enforced by law or by people going to court and saying, uh, my parents don't listen to me kind of thing. What it's trying to do, although the children do have rights by law, what it's trying to do is create a culture of having everyone in society see the relationship to others, whether it's between spouses or between parent and child or grandparents and grandchildren is trying to say, let's look at each other in a more respectful way. And therefore, the old code described a parent's responsibility under the title parental authority, meaning, you know, you decide your child's life and they have to listen to you and they have authority. But the new one describes the relationship as parental responsibility and that the children, you know, especially if they're older, I mean, I don't know if a three-year-old could advocate for themselves (laughs) sufficiently, but for adolescents to be able to advocate for themselves together with their parents. It does give the child a right to go to court if they have to, Uh, if there's evidence of abuse or discrimination, things like that. But I think that the code is one in looking for consensus of everybody agreeing that with unity and respect, mutual respect, self-determination, that there can be a more fuller equality in society. I mean, these are, this is amazing because Cuba already is a revolutionary society. Already, you know, 16-year-olds have the right to vote. So it's interesting. But there is something that is interesting about the age of marriage. Previously, A girl could marry at 14 with parental approval or court approval, but now the legal age of marriage will be 18 years old for both, for any, for any young person. And the reason is, is that it says that even if it's been allowed at 14 or 16 for the boy, that it, it, it it stunts their ability to develop themselves with education or, you know, their future. So. It also is in accordance with the United Nations 
um, norms on the rights of youth and children, that the age of marriage should not be younger than 18. So I think that's very interesting, too. Absolutely. And what I'm also keenly interested in, Gloria, is the process of how this code came together, because I think it's a great example of what participatory democracy looks like in revolutionary Cuba. And uh, people who uh, uh, listen to the show regularly have heard me mention before about how I had the opportunity to, to visit Cuba back in 2019 when they were wrapping up what I believe was a five-year process in uh, amending their constitution. And I was able to visit uh, a CDR committee to uh, defend the, the revolution, which is sort of like the the, the fundamental unit of uh, democracy in Cuba in, in my uh, uh, understanding. And just watching how that process sort of uh, moved, if you will, from the grassroots level, that that sort of hyper local level all the way up into the, the 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 halls of official state power. And it's 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 a participatory process, unlike anything we really have in the United States. And so how did that play out in terms of the bringing together of what became the family code? Because it seems like that's directly connected to this, you know, amazing level of support that it ultimately got at the polls. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Constitution, because if you remember, we were in the same trip and we had uh, access and visit to one of the drafters of the Constitution right inside the National Assembly building. And it was amazing to hear him talk about that five year process in which legal experts, jurists, uh, Ministry of Justice, the Communist Party of Cuba, National Assembly delegates who were assigned to this job for five years studied constitutions around the world, especially the more progressive ones of South Africa and others that have had recent um, revolutionary changes. And so it's an updating of the Cuban constitution. There was a part in it that dealt with a basic description of marriage, which used to say until 2019, that marriage was between a man and a woman. And in this whole discussion, the original draft said it would be marriage between two people. And that generated a lot of debate before the constitution was adapted. And it ended up saying um, in another uh, article of the constitution that marriage is how people describe it for themselves. That marriage is either legally recognized or de facto, meaning if you say you're married, you're married. Even though there was so much, uh, I would say, opposition and misunderstanding about the idea of like saying between two people, that when the constitution was uh, ratified by the population, Immediately, the leaders that had drawn up the Constitution, the leaders of civil society, the Women's Federation, um, the Youth Federation, all kinds of organizations, and the party and the government said, we are going to need to update the family code to become the family's code, recognizing all kinds of families. But they said, obviously have to educate the population in the next two years because you cannot force a vote on people if they don't understand. And what's needed was understanding of the need of gay people to be able to marry, of them to be able to adopt 
and the right of adoption to be broadened also, also to single families, uh, single parents. In other words, a consensus in society is always sought in Cuba. You, you can't force things on people until they understand the need. And the need is for unity based on respecting everyone's rights. And that's what's taken place in the last, actually, three years because of the pandemic. In three years, this code, Families Code, was drawn up by civil society, the government, and the party, and the National Sex Education Center, which really was the leader in all this work of um, bringing about campaigns against homophobia and transphobia in the country. And so there's been this constant messaging on TV, the community activities of saying the family's code is for everybody. And the draft was provided for everyone to have input. You could read it online and put your comments online to the family's code from February to April. And then in April, the National Assembly, which is the parliament, reviewed thousands of suggestions. They accepted many. They improved on the draft. And then from um, that moment, April until August, people had debates to continue um, understanding it. And the leaders of the country, from the Women's Federation to the Committees in Defense of the Revolution, which are the neighborhood groups, everybody involved in this country was showing how we need to vote yes. Yes for full equality. Yes for love and solidarity. It's, it's really amazing. It's really amazing that these kind of concepts are promoted by a government that we have no clue how it could happen here yet until I think we have our own revolution. But anyway, from August, the final draft was published in August for everyone to read fully. And the vote was last Sunday, September 25. And as you said, uh, almost 67% of the population voted yes, which is a supermajority. Yeah. And, you know, uh, to what you just mentioned a moment ago, uh, Gloria, it's hard not to look at the family code in Cuba, the uh, high rate of turnout and high rate of support for it and just how very progressive that it is. I mean, people are sort of, you know, comparing it, you know, putting it up against any similar piece of uh, legislation uh, than people have uh, seen in the world. And uh, it, 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 it's hard not to compare and contrast that with what I see as an encroaching uh, right wing campaign assault on basic democratic rights here in the United States. Of course, you know, there's uh, uh, abortion rights uh, that have been uh, stripped away from many women here in the United States. And that fight is still very much going on. Uh, you know, there's, uh, uh, you know, the racist voter suppression that is happening uh, around the, the United States. And see, this is the U.S. that not only tells the world that it is the greatest champion of democracy and human rights, but also says that countries like Cuba um, are the complete opposite. It's this despotic, hellish, dystopian 
sort of place where there are no uh, democratic rights and that uh, the revolutionary government is imposing itself on the people as opposed to the reality, which is that, you know, they're able to remain in place precisely because of the support of the people. And so, you know, what do you think it says that this imperialist nation, the U.S., is always wagging its finger at Cuba and other countries because they have the audacity to engage democracy on their own terms. Meanwhile, basic democratic rights are uh, uh, under siege from all angles here in the U.S. You know what I mean? I think we live in an upside down world, Sean. We're we're, We're the government and the country that espouses democracy for the world is can only use bombs, sanctions, blockade, war, occupation to impose its domination. And where the very country where we have seen 50 years of a guaranteed right of women to abortion across the country was just thrown out by the most anti-democratic dictatorial institution, the Supreme Court and which eviscerated voting rights, and which is on to more reactionary decisions. We live in a very dystopian situation where people, I think, in the U.S. are confused, worried, afraid of what this future means. We have no say in anything that happens in our country. The fact that Cuba has referendums on basically everything from economic changes to a constitution to family code and on and on is that has to be suppressed. And why in our country, we don't hear of these developments in Cuba. We're not allowed to. In fact, we're the only country in the world where travel to Cuba is banned. And they always say, oh, it's so that you don't help finance the communist regime and keep it going. No, the main reason is so that we can't see what Cuba is really like. That just on the surface, it's a peaceful society. There are no gun shootings in the street by by people against each other or by the police. That's just a basic elemental right to live. That there are no evictions in Cuba even, with a housing crisis, people don't get evicted in Cuba. There's no such thing. So we could go on and on about the rights, the right to full free health care, the right to full free abortion on demand for women. And now this code, which fully expands rights in a way that is unique in the world, there is no other code like this. So when you ask the issue of what does it mean for a country that espouses democracy, well, we're in, the, we're in the country of the highest expression of the power of capital, where Amazon owner Bezos can fly rockets or um, smash union organizing drives because with the hundreds of billions of dollars that he has and his company has, he can't even allow a union for workers to have more say in the workplace, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it also makes me think about how this code is passing within the context of other developments in uh, Latin America. Of course, Brazil is headed to the polls 
this Sunday where, you know, barring any uh, sort of interference from uh, the the incumbent uh, reactionary far-right Jair Bolsonaro, it really does look like uh, a former president, Lula da Silva, very well may be able to uh, take it in the first round. And while, you know, we try not to be too predictive uh, here on the show, when we uh, sort of also have a look at, say, you know, the strengthening of relations between uh, Venezuela and Colombia and things like that. I mean, how do you situate Cuba's family code within these other, I think, very significant developments going on elsewhere in the region, Gloria? Yes, th- there's a lot going on in Latin America, and part of it is the U.S. struggling mightily to maintain its domination and control, but in which in certain areas it's losing. Bolsonaro, the dictator basically of Brazil, has uh, been very close allied to the U.S. and extremely right wing. Um, I think it has the second highest rate of COVID deaths in the world because he refused to do what uh, the scientists said was necessary of vaccines, of masking, and so on. But anyway, the elections coming up on October 2nd. Very soon, in less than two weeks, Lula, who is from the Workers' Party and was president before, when there was great improvements for the population, except especially the poor, he's the main candidate. You're right. Right now, it looks like he has 50% plus one or more, which is necessary to avoid a runoff, in which with a runoff, uh, if he doesn't get 50%, then the right other right-wing and opposition parties could try to join together to defeat him. Hopefully not. But for Lula to come back would be a huge victory for the working class since he was basically imprisoned on false charges of corruption that ended up boomeranging on the right-wing because they were involved in a massive corruption that has brought their house of cards down. But there's a there's a danger, I think, of possible coup in certain countries to try to turn back the left return once again. We saw the uh, recently a few weeks ago that uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who was at one time the president of Argentina and a basic progressive, she was almost assassinated um, by a right winger who, in her face, as she was about to get in a car. Uh, fired a gun in her forehead, and very luckily, the gun didn't go off. But that's what's happening right now. Um, in 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 Colombia, the president Gustavo Petro, who is a huge change, he's a progressive, who has, uh, after decades of right wing governments in Colombia, at the behest of the United States, which has almost had a war a very warlike situation against Venezuela, its neighboring country. Now we have Gustavo Petro opening the border with uh, Venezuela and saying we're going to have a um, fair relationship with each other, trade. We're going to res- President Petro says we're going to respect Venezuela. And that's the road to peace in an area that has had a lot of uh, conflict. So these are very, very good for the people of Latin America. And yet the U.S. is trying to figure out how can we how can we defeat this? And they're having a hard time doing it. Definitely. And we've got a caller on the line here. Wesley, tell us what's on your mind. 
Yeah, I had a question for Gloria. So I know in the vote in Cuba, there was still some on 30% that voted against it. But uh, my question is, how vocal were they in their opposition? Because I know, for example, I know in California back in 2008, we saw you know, very divisive, bigoted, you know, on the no side and out there in the streets, you know, with hate and so forth and so on. Like, was the culture very different in Cuba in the sense that, you know, people weren't out in the streets with the bigotry? I mean, to vote against it, to me, has to be somewhat bigoted, but no society's going to be 100% hate-free. You know, that's just the reality. And, you know, to see Cuba progress like that shows how, you know, with a socialist government in cultures that are very socially conservative, things can change, things can progress. And I think what Cuba did is brings hope to the world all over for people in, L- uh, in other countries that are very oppressive to LGBTQ issues. But that was my question and great show as always. Well, thank you, Wesley. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Gloria, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Thanks for bringing this up about the issue of the vote and some of the opposition to the code, mainly because of the issue of gay marriage and adoption. And I think what you find is that the the government and the drafters of the Constitution, the leadership of the revolution, is has a very advanced revolutionary view of society. And it doesn't always square with everybody in the population. The church, the Catholic church hierarchy especially, and some evangelical churches, although not all, and it's not universal, but they have carried on a campaign in their church, um, in social media, saying this is against the Bible teachings. A family is a man and a woman and their children. Uh, this is really terrible. Vote no. But the government and the media, which is state, you know, like they'll tell you in the U.S., all oh, the state-run media of Cuba, it's a socialist media. And they don't allow reactionary views to be expounded by right-wingers. That just doesn't happen. They have to protect their society and progressive views. So there was no right-wingers who got on to debate and say, we need to say no. It just didn't happen. It was promotion on television and everywhere else of the need to respect everyone's rights and diversity. That's the first thing. But, you know, in the population, there is, it is a Latino country. I don't want to say, oh, that's how Latinos are. I'm Latina myself. But there is a sense of like, people were saying, you know, Children should be brought up by a mother and a father. There was some fear of that. And there was also a campaign by the U.S. promoting right-wing groups. That happens all the time, but in particular to this code. In the 1960s, the U.S. and the Catholic Church in Cuba and United States sponsored what was called um, Peter Pan, where they put out in the... in uh, radio that was beamed into Cuba and in messaging in the churches that children were going to be sent to the Soviet Union and parents would lose their parental rights. And so that as a result of that, mainly middle-class families sent 14,000 of their children to the U.S., many never seeing their children again. It was a horror 
There was a terror campaign by the U.S. That was called Peter Pan. And some of that was reflected in this by the right wing, where they said, oh, look at this. You're not going to have a right where it's calling for respect for children and autonomy. Not so much autonomy, but parental responsibility and the right of children to advocate for themselves. You're going to lose a right to your kids. This kind of thing is what caused some fear. But see, this is law now. It's law as of Sunday. And now the, the continued campaign is for continued education. And once gay parents can have marriage openly and have children, and it'll be like, hey, <laughs> no one's being hurt by that. It strengthens our society. Everything is a process of education and becoming familiar with each other. Sometimes the unfamiliarity is what causes fear and reaction. I'm hopeful for Cuba, and I salute what they have just done. It's a big victory for all people. Absolutely. We're going to move to a break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone line still open, 202-521-1320. That's 2 0252-1320. Want to thank Gloria Lariva so much for joining us today. We know you had to run, but now we are very happy to be joined by, by any means necessary, producer Josh Gomez. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we have a caller on the line as well that's been waiting patiently. Tarif, tell us what's on your mind. Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free joining science. Um, it's Two comments, and one of the comments, I got to make three points in it. The first comment is this. I've been reading um, Haitian Twitter feeds, and I'm saying that the, the, uh, we all know Lula going to win coming this October, right? But the thing is, he done something in 2004 where he got involved with the um, the, uh, the Haitian uh, election thing, and it wasn't good for the Haitians. They came out on losing in. So I think this would have to be done. Our journalists have to confront him about that and ask him a question, will he stay out of uh, the Haitian elections? Because this is very important. It's uprising in the street. They want their freedom back. They want to trade like everybody else on the planet. They want to be. They don't want to be controlled by the Canadians and the French and the Americans no more. So Luna need to be, somebody need to ask that to Luna. Stay out the Haitian business. My second comment is dealing with the Don Lemon and um, Hillary Fortwich. Um, 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 conversation last week dealing with the British Empire supposed to be the best empire of all time. The thing is this, okay, most people don't know the British tried to uh, defeat the Haitians. The Haitians beat the British. The Haitians also fought the French for their freedom, but they had to also fight the British. The British lost. The British also fought against the Jamaicans, the Maroons. They lost against them, right? And also, the British financed the Confederacy against the northern states. They also they sent them weapons, cannons, things, loans, things of that nature, and also a navy to the West Coast 
to blockade San Francisco. And that's when the czar, I forgot his name, of Russia sent in his navy to uh, just to, uh, to tell the British, look, stay out of it or you're going to fight us. So the British is doing certain type of things. They're trying to whitewash history as if they were saints and it really wasn't. Thank y'all for taking my call. Well, thank you, Tarif. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, yeah, the uh, protests of the, the the Haitian people that have been uh, that continue to go on, I think is really important. Of course, it's being uh, completely ignored by um, uh, uh, Western mainstream media. Um, and it's pretty I'm going to say it's pretty wild, but I mean, it's not like it's surprising or anything because what are they protesting for? And we've been covering this on the show about how they're 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 protesting uh, the worsening economic situations. They're calling for um, the government of Dr. Ariel Henri to step down. And of course, we know uh, through our conversations here on the show that Ariel Henri is only able to be in place, not because he was elected, but because he was chosen by U.S. imperialism, basically as the caretaker of uh, Haiti in this moment, if you will, until such time as they find someone that's perhaps uh, uh, more suitable and how that looks exactly, I think, remains to be seen. But to be sure, someone uh, uh, who is willing to uh, kowtow to the whims of Washington, I mean, that's the the precondition for even being a leader in Haiti, as we know. And I'm glad you uh, brought up the issue of, you know, uh, the, the, the British crown. I was watching a really good interview just earlier this afternoon uh, recently that was uh, done recently on our friends at Breakthrough News and they were talking to uh, a representative of uh, the Communist Party of Kenya uh, namely it was Booker Negesa Omole who people may be familiar with if you you know uh, uh, you know on social media and follow that side of it and um, making the point that you know people were saying after the queen died and that pe- people who were correctly pointing out the imperial and colonial character of the British royal family. And then others were um, uh, uh, sort of jumping in like, oh, well, all of that happened before her. And basically she had nothing to do with it. So all the crimes of the British royal family just magically did not happen uh, while she was there. But clearly the situation of Kenya and just, you know, the genocidal violence that happened there, um, uh, namely around, you know, the Mau Mau rebellion, I think proves that to be uh, the exact opposite. And so in terms of has it uh, concerns uh, Lula da Silva, I mean, we were we we did an interview just earlier this week uh, with the journalist that's on the ground in Brazil that was talking about this. And they were saying about how the particular issue about Lula in Haiti, it's not something that uh, uh, has a lot of uh, currents or energy around it on the ground in Brazil. But I mean, in terms of how that plays out as a, a foreign policy within Haiti. Um, I definitely think it's something that we should be keeping an eye on. And I mean, I'm curious uh, uh, myself about how that will play out. But, you know, even still, I do think it's clear that uh, the election of Lula da Silva will be a huge net positive, both for Brazil and uh, Latin America. And I think progressive forces in general. But of course, that's not, uh, you know, to excuse uh, the real issues that are there. And, you know, what I've been thinking about, Josh, um, Just following from our conversation with Gloria this afternoon is about, you know, this question of democracy. And I, you know, noted sort of the contradictions with the reality of the United States in this moment and what we're seeing in 
um, Cuba, which I think is a shining example of uh, socialist democracy and just one uh, uh, among many that we could point out in different socialist countries. That, of course, we're told um, is the antithesis of democracy. And so when we realize that a lot of our basic democratic rights in the United States are under attack, what that means to me is that, you know, we have to organize a mass movement to really fight for those democratic rights. Because a big part of why it's important for U.S. imperialism to lie to us about what really happens in countries like Cuba, like Nicaragua, like Venezuela, like Bolivia, and other uh, countries we could name around the globe, it's, it's that threat of a good example. We're not supposed to think that we have any power or any ability to struggle for these uh, uh, rights and all these other things that should be ours, you know, by birth and by right. You know what I mean? And uh, it, it really shows, I think, the human potential of what a real participatory democracy could be. And so that's a dangerous thing, even though Cuba doesn't pose an existential military threat to uh, the United States or to U.S. imperialism, I think ideologically and politically, it poses a serious threat to imperialism, which is, of course, undergirded by capitalism itself. But, but what are your thoughts on that? You know, Sean, I have to I have to agree with you there. And I, I you know, picking up on that very last example about uh, what is essentially like the threat of a good example uh, that you mentioned about Cuba, not only in like issues of democracy, but also like healthcare. It's it's uh, it's it's pretty clear why uh, places like Cuba are demonized. I mean, imagine Sean that you could just walk into a doctor's office, not have to worry about the bill, and get the care that you need. Uh, that's a radically uh, different uh, situation from what we have here, as opposed to what what's going on in Cuba, where you can uh, not only but walk into a doctor's office and get the care you need, but also the, the focus, there's a focus on preventative care, which is not as profitable as more specialized care or like, you know, having to get like certain surgeries or having to uh, see like certain doctors that deal with like your lungs or like your your heart uh, or, or other things uh, like of that nature. And so, uh, yeah, I have to agree with you there. Like the threat of a good example is I mean, there are many reasons for why uh, social states and uh, uh, so-called enemy states of the U.S. are demonized. But I think that's like a really big one. I mean, I'm, you know, I could go on and on about the examples of what Cuba does differently than the U.S. or what Venezuela or other uh, or China uh, does differently than the U.S. But I mean, all things considered, it, it the really the, the threat is uh, the threat of of expanding yeah, the potential political potential uh, for workers, for workers and oppressed people. And so, yeah, I really have to agree with you there. Uh, on the other note about democracy, I also, uh, I, I even want to put it a little further in that um, the facade of democracy that we have in the U.S. is very clearly uh, crumbling. Um, and so it's it's very interesting to see uh, the difference between Cuba's model of democracy where uh, the people quite literally, uh, quite literally had a hand in crafting this family's code. Meanwhile, in the U.S., I think there's only been one amendment that has actually been uh, supported and like in initiated by uh, people. And I believe that was the um, amendment for the prohibition of the sale of alcohol. Uh, and so the other 26 uh, were 
that was not the case for that. And so uh, you contrast it with today's example in the U.S. where we have a Supreme Court case that uh, is coming up in the next term that threatens to essentially allow any like any legislative body to set the terms of elections. It's 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 a little depressing, to be honest with you, uh, for at least for you and me. But then also uh, it 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 really exposes why we need a mass movement to fight for things like uh, health care and, and for our basic democratic rights. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and this issue with the Supreme Court that you're speaking to is directly connected with this um, attack on basic democratic rights, because I believe it was just yesterday I was discussing about this, you know, decades long, very deliberate, very carefully strategized and very uh, uh, tactful um, reactionary right wing campaign um, from the right in this country. But one of the main obstacles that still faces them is that of the popular vote. One person, one vote does not bode well for the right wing in this country, because whether we're talking about Donald Trump and any other host of uh, a Republican um, uh, presidents, many of them are really only able to enter the White House through uh, the Electoral College, of course, uh, a relic of slavery and something that is not in place to uh, facilitate democracy, but rather to act as a, a bulwark against it. You know what I mean? And so since uh, the right in this country understand th- uh, how one person, one vote is uh, a threat to their power, well, then what we're seeing in terms of this piece in the Supreme Court that you're talking about is basically a move to circumvent that so that they can uh, uh, basically lay hold to power even if they lose uh, the popular vote. And so for those of us in the United States, I mean, I think this is true in general. Certainly it's true for uh, uh, those of us uh, who are, you know, organizers and movement people and things like that. We really have to keep an eye on how that whole issue is moving, because like I say, even though um, this is something that has been happening quietly now for decades, now this reactionary movement has a mass base. You know, and, and this is what uh, uh, I think makes all the difference. And so they have this 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 driving uh, uh, sort of force that that really can be their muscle, frankly, and helping to carry these things through. And even within that, when when we talk about rights, I think I mentioned um, on the show uh, some of the time also about, you know, the event that happened this weekend in New York City where organizers and, and intellectuals, you know, met in Harlem with representatives from the Cuban and Venezuelan government um, to talk about all these sorts of things. And one thing that stuck out to me were the words of Kristen Richardson Jordan, who represents uh, New York's Council District 9, which, you know, is in Harlem, where Riverside Church is. And, you know, she was speaking to People's Dispatch about you know, the importance of solidarity and and, uh, what that means across working class communities internationally. She said, quote, what I would like to see is this being connected with larger movements where the people in my community get connected to working people in Venezuela, Cuba, and what we can do to bridge the gap. Because at the end of the day, we're under this white supremacist capitalist system together. And I feel like that quote just says so much. And I think that's also a reason why um, the U.S. government seeks to disconnect us from countries like Cuba and try to put all these things around, you know, who can uh, uh, travel there because they're aware 
that when people go and see for themselves uh, what's really happening in Cuba and how it just straight up doesn't square with what we hear from uh, government here in the U.S., then uh, that again is a threat to imperialism's hold. Uh, you know what I mean? And so this idea of an international working class movement and building this solidarity and seeing how, well, how do these other countries under different systems functioning under different definitions of democracy, how do they grapple with these concepts of family, the role of children, the role of the elderly, which I neglected uh, to mention. Uh, uh, the elderly also um, are getting, you know, uh, strength and protections and things under these family code. The elderly are discarded in the United States of America. And I would say it's kind of a similar thing with children. I mentioned this before that, you know, American capitalist culture, I think, pretends to care about children. But in truth, when we talk about um, sort of how they're really viewed and the rights that they have, well, then that simply does not seem to be the case. You know what I mean? And so how are they grappling with issues of family? How do they grapple with issues of worker power? And how do they grapple with uh, housing? What about this great housing mission that they had in Venezuela where they just built all of these units? You know what I mean? Something else that we never hear about over here in the U.S. If it's such a, a bloodthirsty dictatorship, then why build all of this housing? You know what I mean? So all of these things that contradict the narratives, misrepresentations and outright lies of U.S. Uh, imperialism. This is why uh, it's so important <laughs> for imperialism to try to keep us from our comrades in other countries. But why it's also important, Josh, for us to build and strengthen these relationships and, and to make solidarity, you know, a, a, a verb and a real action instead of just a buzzword. You know what I mean? Making solidarity, like, like you said, a verb, a real action is, I, I think, the only way we're really going to break this information blockade uh, that keeps this kind of information from uh, working poor and oppressed people. Uh, like, you know, going back to this uh, idea of the threat of a good example, like imagine if uh, people in the United States uh, and more people in the United States than who already know about uh, the great housing project in Venezuela, for example, knew about that. Uh, there are some serious questions that would be raised on the issue of housing in the U.S. if a lot more people knew about that. Why can't the U.S. with its vast wealth uh, and lack of sanctions uh, that are imposed on the U.S. Uh, because, uh, and, and just as a side note, it's it's really impressive that the great housing project is is uh, doing this despite the impact of U.S. sanctions. But uh, getting back to the original point, why is the U.S. not housing the people that uh, that don't have homes or providing affordable uh, uh, homes? I mean, rents, I believe, only just started to uh, decrease after a, a spike in uh, in 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 rent over the last uh, over the summer, uh, which is a result of inflation and which is a result of the uh, Federal Reserve's policies, which are uh, uh, in part driving uh, this uh, this increase in housing prices. And so the point really uh, to make here is that this information, this kind of information is never going to to get out to people who are not already engaged in uh, movement types of spaces and a movement types of media, uh, uh, media consumption. Uh, so making solidarity a verb is in part, uh, an educational, 
uh, movement, an ed- educational uh, campaign, if you will. It's it's a it's it, it obviously isn't the only uh, the only way that we can uh, really act- make our solidarity actionable, but. Uh, Making these connections, these transnational connections, you have to start somewhere. And, and personally, I think that uh, bringing up what other countries, what other socialist countries do for their citizens is one of the best ways to st- to start uh, making your solidarity actionable and like really exposing uh, what what really is at issue in the U.S. Absolutely. And, you know, whenever we talk about democracy in the U.S. and the more it becomes clear that uh, basic democratic rights are under assault here. I mean, it, it, and this is to your point about education. It reminds me about how we are in a moment where we really do need to make a serious study of the period of reconstruction in the United States. And excuse me, I may have said this before is that, you know, not only was the betrayal of reconstruction a historic setback for black people in this country. It was also a historic setback for democracy in the United States because had all of these, uh, because this was not just about electing black people to these different positions. That was a part of it, but it wasn't just about having black uh, faces in high places. There were a number of uh, uh, progressive um, uh, uh, reforms and uh, uh, legislation that were trying to be developed and enacted before a reconstruction was betrayed that had a pretty obvious class character to them. When you're talking about particularly the plight of black people recently freed from formal slavery here in the United States. And then when we look at the uh, the civil rights black power period, that kind of 15 year period between 1955 and 1970, given all that happened and all that was accomplished and given the strength of the black liberation struggle during that period, I think that period could rightly be called a second reconstruction. And so what we need right now here in the United States, we have to fight for a third reconstruction. Not only do we have to fight for our basic democratic rights that are under attack, we also have to continue to push for these issues of truly living wages, pushing for a housing as a human right, pushing for strong worker protections, fighting to end U.S. imperialism once and for all. This, I think, has to be part and parcel of the fight for this third reconstruction to bring about a real democracy, not a uh, a bourgeois liberal Western capitalist democracy, which we live under right now, which seriously constrains the rights of poor working and oppressed people, but a socialist democracy that centers and prioritizes the interest of humanity. I just feel like this is what we, uh, how we should be thinking and the kind of studying and political education that we should be doing as we uh, uh, continue to prepare to really begin to uh, uh, build this uh, a mass people's movement that we know we need so badly. You know, Sean, absolutely. I, I have to agree with you there. I mean, yeah, and of course, like, you know, just to just to as a side note on uh, reconstruction is like one one example of the reconstruction as as a potential revolutionary period in american history i mean uh fuel order what what is it 15 i believe uh which famously is promised 40 acres and a mule to formerly enslaved 
um, African people uh, is essentially a land reform uh, promise, which is something that has been made in countless revolutionary periods uh, throughout history, you know, providing land to, uh, in this case, formerly enslaved people in, in a more international and general sense, uh, providing land to people who formerly did not have land, such as uh, peasants. I mean, that that is a truly revolutionary act when land itself is uh, already so uh, commodified and, um, and, and, and used for for profit. I mean, uh, housing, the issue of housing, you know, itself is uh, a land issue as much as it is uh, anything else, uh, you know, because it's not that we have a lack of land or a lack of homes in the United States. That's it's, 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 it's for profit. And so I, I, you know, I have to agree with you. There is a, there is a educational uh, piece to all of this and to uh, really working on our political education to really contextualize the uh, struggles of our day. Uh, you know, when, when, when you bring up voting rights to somebody like on the street, a work, working or poor person on the street, uh, the there's a there's a chance that somebody when they hear the when they hear about voting rights thinks that oh the solution is voting for Democrats because the Democrats are uh, are for voting rights or uh, and are are for democracy, right? And to your point, Sean, uh, that that that's where political education starts. We have to. We have to advocate for things like voting rights and for uh, democratic rights as a whole, while also pointing out that this two-party system would never uh, protect voting rights. I, I and, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading uh, recently, and I'm not sure if you've seen this, Sean, but like Kristen Cinema was just invited by Mitch McConnell to some, I don't know, some, uh, some, some form of a, a celebration or, or or something to that extent, and Mitch McConnell. Described Kristen Cinema as extraordinarily effective and a genuine moderate. Uh, quote: She is today what we have too few of in the Democratic Party: a genuine moderate and a deal maker. McConnell said it took one a hell of a lot of guts for Kristen Cinema to stand up and say, "I'm not going to break the institution in order to achieve a short-term goal." And Sean, I believe at this event, she also. Uh, advocated for uh, introducing uh, the filibuster again for executive nominees and uh, federal judges. And so I, I think, uh, you know, again, to your point, when we talk about like political education, uh, we have to like we have to really pair that with with what uh, other campaigns we uh, are working on so that we don't fall into the trap of of promoting uh, a system like the Democratic Party and the two party system as a solution. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think a couple of things following from your comment. I mean, number one, I'll never understand why people exalt and uplift so-called moderates, you know, in the United States. People brag about being a centrist. Like, why would you be proud about, like, standing for nothing? And why would you praise someone for standing for nothing? Also, it, it's not true. Kirsten uh, Sinema is not a moderate. Uh, neither is Joe Manchin. They are both right wingers. When you actively intervene, you take it upon yourself to intervene and to try to scuttle um, uh, pieces of legislation uh, uh, that would have a positive effect on poor, working, and oppressed people, you are a right-winger. And I'm speaking here of their attack on the Build Back uh, a Better plan, which, you know, certainly we could make criticisms of it, but it was broadly popular, but not even that could be allowed uh, uh, to pass. And people like, you know, Cinema and, and Mansion uh, come up with all the excuses, but 
you know, got to organize to fight it. We ran out of time here by any means necessary today, but we'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. One thing, Gloria LaRiva, so much for joining us today, and we will see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.